people don't think of philanthropy as a political and economic system enough. And that's exactly what it is. This is Michelle Shireen Murray, your host and fellow traveler on The Ethical Rainmaker, a podcast exploring topics that deserve a deeper examination in nonprofits and philanthropy, including the places we can step into our power or step out of the way. If you're new to this podcast or these topics, you might feel defensive, which is understandable. You might wonder why we present these critiques when so many people are benefiting from the good work happening in nonprofits and rely on the third sector for care, for critical services, and even for money. But if we don't examine how these systems and these dynamics came to be, we can never hope to reimagine them, improve them, or do better to benefit the communities we're trying to serve. One of the concepts I rarely hear defined is this notion, and I've said it many times myself, that the foundation that philanthropy and nonprofits were built on is faulty or problematic or racist. Well, today we're doing a deeper dive into the why. We'll specifically explore the relatively recent history of how these systems came to be, specifically in the United States, and the fact that they're built on deep injustices. For our listeners in other parts of the world, don't worry, Many of your histories are mirrored by this one, so the story is similar. Christina Shimizu is co-founder of Community-Centric Fundraising, director of individual giving at Seattle's Wing Luke Museum of the Asian American Experience, and she currently organizes with Decriminalized Seattle and the Chinatown International District. She's the co-founder of Activist Class, a political podcast set in Seattle, Washington. Christina is an experienced trainer on the intersections of class and race and uses her analysis to examine and dismantle the ways philanthropic engagement perpetuates white supremacy and other systems of power. Welcome, Chrissy, to The Ethical Rainmaker. Yay! Thank you for having me. Word. So one of the reasons I wanted to invite you on is that I realized that in all of the episodes that I've done so far, and also in a lot of conversations that I have with folks, we're often referring to the problematic nature of how philanthropy was built or how nonprofits were built. But I actually rarely hear anyone define exactly what that journey was and why it's problematic. And in our workshop that we did together just last week, the way that you laid it out, you are a fucking genius. You turned wonky policy shit into consumable information that can be understood by a broader audience and utilized. And so there are many reasons why I love you. And this is not even among the most major, but it is a pretty (laughs) incredible talent that you have. And so, uh, yeah, of course, you're welcome. And I wanted to compliment. Yeah, well, you're incredible. And coming off of our work together last week, I thought it'd be fun to talk or useful to talk about problematic philanthropy. I love that. And I love the I love the opportunity to nerd out with you. Yeah. Have a conversation about something super niche. Dude, you're, you're, you're the coolest nerd I know. Okay. <laughs> so are you. You are clo- you're a closet nerd. I am a closet nerd. And I love how you talk about everything to do with the political economy of philanthropy. And yeah. I can just see like the lines that you draw between all of these dots on a timeline and just how things became so donor centered, right? Oh man, I'm getting tired. I can feel it. I wonder (laughs) if you talked, I wonder if you talked to us a little bit about the history of philanthropy and why when we're 
having conversations about philanthropy or nonprofits and how problematic their history and their foundation is, what that even means. Mm. There's always a story you've never heard before. And when you think about like your who's in your family, you might know your parents' story. You might not, honestly. You might know your grandparents' story or have had the privilege to have met your grandparents or the, the privilege to have met or known your great-grandparents. But do you know your family story earlier than that? Do you are you connected to any history that's earlier than that? And when we think about philanthropy and when we think about um nonprofits and the system of providing resources to our community right now, do we really think about how that came to be and how that was formed in the United States over time? And do we think about it as a political and economic system? And do we think about it as a cultural system, a culturally informed system? And how are we critical of which culture is represented in that, which cultures are represented in that, and which cultures are not? What forms of care, what forms of philanthropy, you know, are recognized as elite and forms of support that are are worthy of awards and honors versus forms of support that are um, undervalued or invisible labor, you know, like care work that mothers do, that women do, that communities of color do, that is oftentimes invisibilized, never awarded, never properly resourced. So true. And so when I talk about the political economy of philanthropy, what I'm really talking about is this practice that of philanthropy that is formalized right now that kind of works hand in hand with the nonprofit industrial complex or the structure of how our nonprofits operate um, institutionally with philanthropy and with different private and public forms of funding to create the structure of what we call the nonprofit industrial complex and what that is rooted in, what forms of colonial power that turned into different economic policy that turned into different tax code, (laughs) that turned into like this um, whole system, this whole structure that we experience today, you know? And really understanding the root of it and how it evolved, I think, gives us a clearer understanding of what it is that we, what what it is that's working, um, what it is that isn't working, and, how we can have some agency and some power in moving forward so that it, it can work better for our communities. Mm, mm-hmm. Thank you. Talk to us about what that beginning was here in the United States. The first foundation was established in 1907 by Margaret Olivia Slocum Sage, and she was the second wife of railroad baron Russell Sage, and she inherited $70 million dollars and she was able to form a foundation with it. And at the time, I like to reference actually like the Wayne Luke Museum again, because the current building that we're in right now was built by 130 migrant laborers, Chinese American laborers mm-hmm. who worked on those railroads. Mm-hmm. But at that time frame, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act that made it illegal for Asian Americans to own land. And so while Margaret, 
you know, owned multiple homes, multiple mansions, and was able to amass this $70 million or more, you know, from the exploitation of labor and the ability to acquire land, our immigrant POC communities whose labor was exploited for that money to be amassed also were systematically excluded from being able to build wealth in other ways. Yeah. A lot of people, I think, don't realize that there weren't (laughs) – like philanthropy in the United States is like relatively new. Like the way that we have formalized our systems of community care in this country are like just a little bit over 100 years old as a Mm. system. So like even now when we think about like the movement in defense of black lives and how activists are calling to defund the police to reinvest in community and reinvest in systems of community care that will actually address the needs in the community, like additional mental health specialists, increases in housing opportunities, like having people show up that have like drug user health knowledge and support. Like those systems have been, A, are like, you know, structurally starved from the public sector as opposed to like uh, the punitive systems, the criminal punishment systems, the policing systems, but like also like the, the way that they're developed in this nonprofit industrial complex and then through other sources of funding, like through either the public sector or the private sector and philanthropy, all so new. Prior to the civil war, um, we, only had mutual aid networks where like people would help out their neighbors. They would help out neighbors who they culturally thought, and this was in white culture, right? This is colonial white culture in the United States. There were women and children who were deemed as those who were deserving of help and support, right? So like already we're seeing kind of the early formation of our systems of care adopt this culture of paternalism and saviorism adopt the culture of the patriarchy like we must help protect you know these poor defenseless people who are our women and children and we are their protectors we are their saviors right and so then in 1907 um the country is it's growing and it's expanding and in its development of infrastructure russell sage a railroad baron dies and leaves his first wife or sorry what was his second wife 70 million dollars you know, and like, uh, uh, and and land and multiple properties. And with that, she is able to hoard that in the first foundation that's established in this country. And that is sort of, you know, the beginning of the nonprofit industrial complex. The, the date that is often cited, however, as like the creation of the nonprofit industrial complex is actually 1913 when a revenue act is passed that creates this like 501c3 tax exempt status for nonprofits. And then with that also implements an income tax mandate on high incomes. But although wealthy people in this country are now beginning to be taxed on their wealth, they also have this outlet, this avenue to like still control through foundations how and where their money will be spent. So they still get to protect all of the decision-making power and social power that comes with having wealth and also not have it taxed. So I'm hearing you say at the beginning, already pre-Civil War, there were mutual aid networks that were serving who was deemed 
deserving. So certain groups of women and children of certain classes and races were deemed deserving. There were mutual aid networks for them. This is where we're starting to see, you said, the formation of this type of aid. You mm-hmm. also alluded to to kind of a starvation of the system. We didn't have social services that we needed. Mm-hmm. And the 501c3 nonprofit status was created mm-hmm. in 1913. With the Revenue Act of 1913. So 501c3 status was created in 1913 mm-hmm. with that Revenue Act. We already are seeing people put their money away in these big tax shelters. Mm-hmm. And what happens next? Mm-hmm. So um, quickly, like taking a step back to to like talk through that mutual aid work where like communities just set up networks of care between neighbors and from knowing their neighbors and from knowing what the individual needs of their communities were. This was also the precursor to labor unions. So there were also workers who set up mutual aid networks who would, you know, provide networks of care among coworkers and families. And this was essentially like a socialist ideology, right? Or another way of looking at the formation of the nonprofit industrial complex is that it kind of co-opted and sanitized the values of organized labor and yeah. of of like these socialist values too, of like making sure that that laborers who were being exploited could get the care that they deserved and the the care that they needed and then move it through this paternal system of nonprofits and foundations where wealthy people were then given tax incentives and tax breaks to care for the poor, the poor and the poverty that they themselves created, right? I was just about to say, what makes that relationship paternalistic? The very fact that they're exploiting labor to begin with, creating poverty to begin with, and then given the power to determine the needs and the resources that these poor communities that they create have access to and getting to determine what that care looks like, right? And so what happens next? Um, in 1917, individual tax deductions that benefit the wealthy are passed. And then in 1921, so in less than a decade, there are grant-making tax deductions that are passed as well that benefit wealth accumulation and private foundations. So now private foundations are able to, or any grant-making institution is able to gain access to tax deductions Mm. just for holding wealth and being a grant-making institution. And so this was really before there were any regulations in place for disbursement. So if you were you know, holding on to like $70 million at that time and only granting out $5,000 and your money was still able to like access interest or investments in the market, it would grow. It would sit there and it would grow, but you were not in any way accountable to dispersing or paying out that money back into the community. Mm. Those reforms wouldn't come into play until 40 years later in the 1960s. We're defining the problematic foundation of philanthropy on nonprofits with Christina Shimizu right now on The Ethical Rainmaker. What gaps exist in your knowledge? Hit us up at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com or contact us through our website and socials. We'd love to hear from you. 
Do you enjoy the topics we're bringing you? The best way to support this pod is by subscribing, sharing with colleagues, and contributing to our new Patreon. Learn more at theethicalrainmaker.com. So when we're talking about wealth hoarding, Mm -hmm. this is actually what we're referring to, right? As a wealthy person at that time, and even now, you can put your money into one of these tools, basically. I think that this is the part that like gets me really excited because people don't think of philanthropy as a political and economic system enough. Yes. And that's exactly what it is. The donor advised fund, the foundation, like any type of like planned giving, all of the different ways that as fundraisers, we like market the benefit of giving as a tax deduction (laughs) is actually like problematic in the sense that we're starving the public sector. You know, we're, we're like creating this idea that like taxes are bad, you know, when in fact, like taxes, if we thought about like how we could like democratically work to determine the best and highest needs of our community, our system can pay for and take care of itself. Like we can take care of our people. For me, like our sector needs to dream way bigger than where we're dreaming right now because systemic poverty cannot be solved by a nonprofit that deals with harm reduction that deals with trying to care for the immediate needs and the survival needs of people when if we're not actually like focused in on what our communities need in order to thrive and so one of my favorite mentors told me when i first started this work that like it is critical that like anyone in nonprofits or in philanthropy or foundations need to be working themselves out of a job. Mm-hmm. Like if we're not working ourselves out of a job, then like what, it, what is it that we're doing? And, and what is it that we're doing this for if we can't envision a world that is truly beyond poverty and oppression where our work is unneeded? That's really useful. And so I'm seeing the connection between what you were first talking about around actually this piece where the needs, the community had needs that weren't being taken care of. And some members of the community were being taken care of because they were deemed worthy of that, deserving of that. And others weren't. Philanthropy starts existing in a, in an official like tax code capacity. Nonprofits start existing to provide the services that, aren't being provided to folks who need assistance. Mm -hmm. And charity becomes a tool, a system, where philanthropy has, philanthropists have a lot of power in deciding how a community gets served and what community gets served with the money that they're willing to donate to a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Money that they have been hoarding and in giving away are sharing with the community, and yet they also have major tax benefits that make it absolutely a benefit to them personally to be able to do that work, yes? Exactly. And another key component of this is that the wealth accumulation of these philanthropists 
happened through extractive economies, right? Mm -hmm. Like they were able to extract and exploit labor in order to accumulate wealth. They were able to extract and exploit land in order to accumulate wealth. They stole land from the first people of this country, the indigenous people of this country, and committed genocide. They stole people from Africa and exploited slave labor. They exploited immigrant labor from China in order to build railroads. And so the first foundations and and much and any type of wealth accumulation, just by the very nature of the capitalist economy, but especially during this period of U.S. colonization, is tied to deep exploitation and direct exploitation of human beings. This neoliberal slash neocolonial system of finance is a way that we can like kind of detach ourselves from thinking about how we still are very colonized and are able to colonize and exploit land and labor through financial systems. But that still happens today. We're talking with Christina Shimizu, a co-founder of community-centric fundraising, a Seattle-based political activist, philanthropy wonk, and fundraiser, right now on The Ethical Rainmaker. Learn more about Christina in the show notes at theethicalrainmaker.com. We just went through the, like, the very first steps of that history, a beautiful analogy of what that looks like when we're working in the nonprofit sector, but do we unclog the sink, turn off the faucet or mop, and we're choosing, many of us are choosing to mop, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like the pointlessness of of some of the work that we're doing when we're not changing the system. Mm-hmm. You tied in socialism and labor unions to the beginning of the history, and you tied in what happens now is still happening. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there's anything missing in that? I will say that like if we want to make change in our sector and in our lives, then it's critical that we start developing that we start seeking out a political education that gives us an analysis of not only like the history and political economy of philanthropy, but of our specific sector, like the work that we do and that it represents. Like if we can't talk about like how it was born, what it was born from, then like, you know, what we're too zoomed in then on where we are now. What exciting things might we find you know, if we start doing some of that research yeah. and start building that in to how we think about the way that we do our work. Totally true. I really think that our country, I think that we have like an existential crisis. We need to get real with ourselves. And we haven't figured it out yet when it comes to like who still is deserving of care. How much do we value care versus how much we value this idea of rugged individualism and like being able to access wealth and prestige versus just like caring for our community and caring for our collective need. And I think that what it really boils down to is that question. And it's just as easy as that. And it's, for me, been interesting to look and see it, like how this has played out over time. In post-war eras, there is this general sense that was still very racist period, of course, in American history. There's just, just general sense that like, we had to take care of 
each other. You know, it was important to have economic policy and domestic social policies that invested in American people, invested in jobs, invested in healthcare, invested in education, invested in the idea of the American dream, which was that like people could, you know, have homes and like afford food on the table, blah, 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 blah. And clearly, you know, that again was not accessible to everyone in our community. There, like the GI Bill made it so that like only white families were able to access funds to buy their first home. Redlining and exclusionary housing practices were still in place. So again, more white families were able to pass on generational wealth um, while like essentially ghettos were created in the United States where people of color were, you know, not allowed to have access to the resources that they needed to thrive. And then we see in the 60s, a deep analysis. Lyndon B. Johnson is the president and he wants to fight, you know, the war on poverty in America. But that's mostly because wealth inequality has kind of like risen to this extent where now like there are really, really poor whites. And so like, oh, there's really, really poor whites. We need to like all of a sudden fight a war on poverty at home. But at the same time, we were fighting a war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And so this too, like called the question around like racial tensions. This was, you know, on the cusp of the civil rights era. And this was on the cusp of a women's movement. And so all of these things were happening socially in the United States, and that led us to a period of reforms in philanthropy, where finally, like, because people had a, a stronger collective analysis of wealth inequality and racialized wealth inequality and a distrust of accumulated wealth and a distrust of, of how that money would be spent and a desire for more accountability, the Tax Reform Act of 1969 is passed that imposes the 6% payout rule. And then there's the Revenue Act of 1963 that distinguishes between public and private foundations because mm. there's this distrust, right, of like private foundations and a desire to understand more oversight. And this period, too, is known as this period of modern liberalism where like Generally, there's strong political support for economic regulation of the economy. There is opposition of tax cuts. We want more money funneling into our public sphere in order to support the expansion of public programs. And so with that, you know, is the expansion of the role of government, right? If like we have government playing a greater role in like providing healthcare, providing education, and providing these social services that we need, you know, housing to all survive. And at the same time, there's an expansion of civil liberties. But like, this all gets reversed. And this is really important to note. And this could be an entirely separate podcast. But like, this all starts to reverse itself two decades later in the 1980s really one decade later. I mean, it's like really like the 70s and 80s. Neoliberalism is incubated in think tanks in the United States and then rapidly expanded through policy throughout the 80s. And what is neoliberalism? Neoliberalism is a political and economic philosophy that's basically like the exact opposite of like New Deal and like 
liberalism. It's basically deregulation, privatization, and cutting taxes. But long format, it's like not wanting any regulation on the economy. Got it. That would be like environmental protections as an example. The privatization of things that are offered in the public sphere. So like things like education and healthcare are no longer, or or even banks, right? <laughs> like public banks, like state banks, that all of these should be operating in the competitive free market and not operated by government. So the role of government shrinks. And then also cutting taxes. So creating more incentive for business to reinvest in itself, giving money back to businesses to reinvest in themselves and not toward government. Um, and that the idea many will say behind that is that like it'll create jobs. But really what we're seeing is like, you know, this uneven distribution of wealth, this uneven wealth accumulation and like the creation of like um, many billionaires, many of whom live in our state, Washington state, because we yeah. do not have an income tax. Wow. That's awesome. I want it distilled for me in a way that you do it, you know, like where you, you enjoyed exploring it. And then I get to reap the rewards of your hard labor um, and research and get to hear about it in a way that makes sense to me so that I can use it for all the things that I or we all need to use this information for. And it's so it's so important, but also not all of us are policy wonk nerds. So I'm really glad that you were here to give that background. Christina Shimizu is an activist, a fundraiser, and co-founder of Community-Centric Fundraising. Learn more about her work in the show notes at theethicalrainmaker.com or find her on LinkedIn. Chrissy, thank you so much for taking this time and joining us today to explain these concepts. Yeah, thank you for having me as a guest. That's it for The Ethical Rainmaker. I'm Michelle Shireen Muri. Thank you so much for being with us on this journey deeper into the world of nonprofits and ethical fundraising, and in this case, the political economy of philanthropy. There's a lot of information for you to dig into in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so we can count you in. And if you value these conversations and want to offer financial support, please check out our new Patreon at theethicalrainmaker.com. The Ethical Rainmaker is produced and edited in Seattle, Washington by Isaac Kaplan-Wolner with socials by Rochelle Pierce. We're sponsored by my fundraising consulting collective, Freedom Conspiracy, and you can find us at freedom-conspiracy.com. A special thank you to Stephanie Ann Johnson and the High Dogs for letting us use their song, American Blues. That's it for The Ethical Rainmaker. See you in two weeks. <laughs>